So for those of you that aren't aware of it, we are going through the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth gospel. And uh, we are going through it line upon line, verse upon verse, and we are allowing the Holy Ghost to drive the narrative instead of me coming up with a title and a topic and driving the narrative. We are allowing the Holy Ghost to speak to us. And we know it's the Holy Ghost speaking to us today. Why? Because it is He who breathed over the authors and influenced them to write, inspired them to write. As a matter of fact, the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, the breath of God is the Spirit of God. And in order to be Spirit-filled, we have to receive the breath of God. And the Word of God is Spirit-filled. The Word of God is God-breathed. And when we submit ourselves, receive, or understand the Word of God, we are being filled with the presence of the Lord. You see, the first three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. I'm just wondering, Steve, do you mind grabbing that whiteboard for me? Thank you. The first three Gospels are called the Synoptic, Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. These are the Synoptic Gospels. And they are very, very different than the Gospel we are currently studying. John is, takes a complete different angle, a complete different view, has a complete different emphasis than the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, tells of the historical Jesus. It gives us where he came from, his genealogy, tells us what he taught, it tells us the things that he did, and it includes the miracles that he performed. This is John, very different from the first three Gospels. Now, John, on the other hand, he doesn't tell us, give us the historical narrative of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and the miracles of Christ. No, he actually shows us who Jesus is. He points to the person of Jesus Christ, the divinity of Christ. And when we study John, we come away knowing Jesus better. If ever you need to learn more about Christ... Go to the book of John. Now, I have two goals here today. And the first goal is to help us understand Jesus better, help us to know Him more. I did a, a little video on Radio Church a while ago, and the title is Three Ways to Know, <clears throat> or Three Ways to Measure Your Closeness to God. <coughs> Excuse me. Three Ways to Know How Close You Are to God. And oftentimes, it's kind of like a thumb suck. People kind of guess. Thank you. People kind of guess. Uh, yeah, no, I'm close to God because, you know, I think of Him. Therefore, I'm close to Him. I think of somebody, therefore, I'm close to them. But that's not necessarily how you measure closeness. I gave three uh, specific ways on how to do that. But one of them is this. Closeness is not measured in distance, but in knowledge. I am only close to somebody because I know them well. The better I get to know the person, the closer I am to that person. You see what I'm saying? So you are only as close to God as your knowledge of Him. 
the more knowledge you get of God, the closer you are to God. So if you ever feel distant from God, you know, one solution, in that video I give three, but one answer to the question, how do I get close to God, is increase your knowledge of Him. There's such a thing as theology, which is the study of religion, right? Theology is the study of religion. But theology proper is the term they use for the study of God Himself. His attributes, His character, His ways. His attributes, His character, His ways. And when you understand these things about God, you increase your knowledge of Him, which of course causes you to be closer to Him. And where do we go in order to learn about God? Do we internalize our thoughts and come up with ideas as to who He could possibly be and why He should be that way? Or do we go to the Word of God and objective truth to discover who the Bible says He is? Well, of course, that's the way we learn about who God is. You don't discover God by going subjective. You discover God by going objective. Amen? And so the first thing I hope to share with you today is who Jesus is. Knowing more about Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to just find a clean page. Otherwise, I know you're writing down all the wrong notes. <laughs> The canon of Scripture, 66 different books, written over one and a half thousand years by 40 plus authors on three different, in three different languages and three different continents. It's divinely unified. There's no disagreement on all the hottest topics in life. Mostly, it's most sought after book in the world. Number eight, it's got 3,200 fulfilled prophecies and counting. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing thing about the Word of God. But that's not what we're doing today. <laughs> so my first goal is for us to Steve do you mind getting me like a marker somewhere I uh, appreciate it thanks Steve Steve is like such a help I <laughs> appreciate it um, the second goal that we have today is discovering what it means to be in the light versus being in darkness being in the light thank you Steve being in the light versus being in darkness. And I hope that by the end of today, as we go through chapter 1, verse 4 through 8 of John, we will discover just that. So, let's go to John chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read through uh, some of what we discussed yes, last week, and then we're going to go through our new portion of scriptures. So last week we did John 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, in the beginning was the Word, was past tense. So in the beginning, the Word pre-existed. In the beginning of everything, the Word already was. Jesus already was. And the Word was where? With God. That's where the Word was. Where was Jesus? With God. Then John says, and the Word was God. Don't mistake in that. Don't think that He was just with God, but less than God. No. The Word was before the beginning of all things, already with God, but He Himself was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, Jesus, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In other words, Jesus, 
the second person of the Trinity was extremely involved with God's creation of the universe and of men. John 1 verse 4, this is where we're going to continue. John 1 verse 4, it says, In Him was life, talking about Jesus, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. It did not overcome it. A man came, one sent by God or from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. John was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Let's ex exegetically walk through a few verses and allow the Spirit of God, therefore, to reveal Jesus to you and I through this Apostle John's writing. But I want to remind you that the way God loves us is not just through the cross. That is a definite way by which God loves us. It's not just by choosing you before the foundations of the world. My wife knows I love her. I chose her. You know God loves you. He chose you. You know somebody loves you because they live sacrificially in order to benefit you. So we look to the cross. We look to our, the fact that we chose and we know we're loved. We look to the cross and we see the sacrifice. We know that we are loved. But here's another third way that we know that we are loved by God. And that is the fact that He reveals Himself to us. Remember the story about Lazarus who died? Jesus gets the, Jesus gets the word, Lazarus is sick. Jesus goes, okay, well, let's wait for him to die first, and then I'll go. <laughs> but the Bible says, and Jesus loved them. That's why he waited. Why? Because he wanted to go there when he was dead and raising from the dead so that he could reveal himself to them. So when God reveals himself to you, it is proof of the fact it's a sign of God's love for you. And so let's look at who Jesus is as we look at John's writings. Verse 4, it says, In him was past tense life. In him was life. What did John mean by writing, In Jesus was life? What does this mean? I have this urgency for clarity. I need to be able to wrap my mind around something in order for it to have an impact on my life. Not understanding something means it's not touching you. Not having an understanding of something means it's not having an effect in your life. But having understanding of something means it's working in you. And so, what does it mean when John said, in him was life? See, in ancient Greek, the word life can be translated as the word bios. Bios. So, life equals bios. Which is where we get the word biology from. Okay? Then, the second, well, let me just say this about bios. 
It's where we get the word biology from, and this Greek word bios therefore refers to biological life. In him was bios, biological life. There wasn't anything that started breathing, anything that has a heart that now pumps, any flower that grows. There's nothing that, that lives that wasn't from him. And then the second word in Greek that means life, let me just say life, is Zoe. But this life is eternal and this life is spiritual. Spiritual and eternal. Let me just write it so that. So I'm just doing this for clarity's sake. So this is what Jesus actually has within him. This is actually who he is. He is both bios and Zoe, because Zoe is the word that, that John uses here when he says, in him was Zoe. But Zoe doesn't just mean eternal life, spiritual life. It's the principle of eternal, spiritual, eternal life. It's the principle of life. Zoe, therefore, can, can be read this way. In him was the life principle. In him was the life principle. You can read it this way. In him were all the elements that make up life itself. In Christ, in him was life. In him are all the elements that make up the life that every single living thing and creature and being has. That means not only did he create the biological world and all who are in it, but he also has the power and the ability to give them spiritual life eternally. He has the ability, the means, to give them all of that. But beyond what you are looking at at this board right now, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it confirms not only does he actually birth everything and bless everything eternally, or has the ability to, but he also sustains all of life. He sustains everything biologically, spiritual, and eternal that he has breathed into. Therefore, he is the foundation of life. Jesus is the source of life. This is what, he would, this is what John meant when he said, in him was life. He is the foundation of life. He is the source of life. He is the generator of life of life. He is the fountain of life. That's why he is able to be the giver of life. He is also the sustainer of all life, whether it be biological, spiritual, and eternal. He sustains it. That's why we believe in the security of the saints, the eternal security of the saints. Why? Because he is the one who gives it and gives it eternally. And then we have to understand that he is life itself. He is life itself. There is no principle, standard, or measure of life outside of Christ. There is no principle, no standard, or measure of any kind of life outside of Christ. He is responsible for all of it. He is the source of all life, and He is also the one who sustains it and maintains it. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He calls himself the life. 
John 14, 6, Jesus said to, said to him, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. So next time you read John chapter 1, verse 4, where he says, and in him was life, you realize that it actually it speaks volumes of who Jesus really is. Then the next line, the Apostle John writes, and the life was the light of mankind. The life, this life, becomes the light to mankind who was currently at the time in darkness. So Jesus comes, he, he is the life, he brings life, and that becomes the light of mankind. So therefore he is both light, life and light. And without Christ, mankind would be without both life and light. That means without Christ, mankind is not in light because he has no life, but he's in death and in darkness. He has no life, therefore he has no light. Consequently, he's in both death and darkness. Death and darkness, the very two things that man naturally fear, death and darkness. Death and darkness is the furthest point from life and light. It's the opposites. So when men fell, men actually really fell in distance from God, grace from God, in knowledge from God, in perception of God, in understanding of God, in all things that you need in order to see. Because you're in darkness. So he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. In verse 5 he says, And the light shines in the darkness. And the light shines in the darkness. I'm always intrigued at Hollywood. I'm sure you are at the same. Just how the highest grossing movies has to do with the theme of light and darkness. The highest grossing movies always is between good against evil or how love triumphs over hate. And the concept of light overcoming darkness strikes a nerve in people because you'll see people flooding the movie theaters the moment light and darkness and the battle between the two is well explained in the movie. But if we teach our kids, like for instance with Star Wars, that Star Wars is all about light versus darkness, isn't it? Light versus darkness. However, the light that they are referring in Hollywood is, is the light of humanism. And we have to identify that. We have to know this because you can easily be swallowed up in humanism because it's just moralism and human goodness. And that never saves anyone because we are in darkness and we don't really recognize what we ought to recognize and we don't almost perceive what we ought to perceive if in fact we were in the light. And so we, we always tell our kids, the only true light of the world is Jesus. And if Star Wars doesn't confess the light to be Jesus, trust me, they don't mean Jesus. <laughs> they mean humanism. Humanism and human's goodness and your decision to choose what is good as a human. But that is not what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light. So John says, and the light 
shines in the darkness. When he says, and the light shines in the darkness. Can you see the word light is capitalized? And the light shines in the darkness. Just as God personifies love, the Bible says God is love. God is love. That is who He is. Love is not God. God is love. God defines what love is. God is love. Love does not define God. God defines love. So if it's contrary to God, it is not love no matter how good it feels. It is not love no matter how sentimental things are. If it's not God, it is not love because God is love. He is the love principle or the principle of love. He is the principle of love. And in the same way that God personifies love, here John says that the light, capital L, shines in the darkness. Jesus personifies light. He is the person that is light. He doesn't give light. That's not necessarily. He, he naturally gives light because He is light. So what does it mean that Jesus shines His light in the midst of the darkness? What does that mean? Are you guys all still with me? Isn't, is this too deep? All right, good. What does it mean that Jesus shines His light in the darkness? Because I was going to say, if it's too deep, just take a nap. We'll be done, all, we'll be done soon. It's okay. So to explain this, we need to clarify what the Bible means. What does the Bible mean when it says darkness? If Jesus shines... His light in the darkness, let's qualify darkness. See, we are either in darkness or in light, and our state can be identified by looking at different segments of our humanity. So by looking at this next portion, you can somewhat identify whether you're in the light or in darkness. How many of you would like to know if you're in the light or in darkness? Yeah? All right, so it's nice to read it. It's another thing to understand it. So here's my, here's my board, all right? <laughs> I love this board. I feel like I'm... It's my, it's my security. <laughs> Light versus darkness. And I'll give you a synopsis of it in the beginning. It's perception versus blindness. The person, the person who's in darkness is, is so blind, he, he cannot perceive. Number two, the person who's in darkness is so ignorant, he has no understanding. So the first one is an identification issue. They cannot identify because they have no perception. They're blind. Think about it. Here comes Jesus. I mean, he wasn't born yesterday. He was already 30 years old when he walked up to John the Baptist. Everybody saw him. Most knew him. But nobody identified him. He grew up with everybody. Nobody identified him to be who he really was. He was light. But do you realize that if this room is pitch black dark and we put the brightest light into this room, the blind man wouldn't even know it. To him, he'd still be in darkness. And people were so blind. John had to say to them, you are standing right in front of the light. 
That's why he had to say, Behold! Because they weren't beholding. They couldn't behold. Because even though the light appeared, the blind man couldn't see any of it. And so, the person that's in darkness is the person who's so blind he cannot perceive, identify, see. The person who's in darkness is, is, is the person who's so ignorant that his mind has no capacity to understand. The person who is in darkness is the one who is... I've got to change this. I'm sorry. It was The person who is in darkness is the person who is morally deceived. Morally deceived. Because he has no moral clarity. He will choose, he, he will point to evil and call it good. He will point to good and call it evil because he's morally disorientated and deceived. His sin has blinded him. This is the story of Samson. So let's talk about perception versus blindness. Perception versus blindness. This is the first sign of darkness. Wow. You see, man's perception can be enlightened or it can be darkened. Man's insight can be enlightened or insight can be darkened. Maximized or minimized. The person in God's light sees truth. The person in darkness walks in error. He walks in falsehood. But the thing is, he does not see that he is in darkness. He doesn't know that he's in falsehood. He doesn't recognize his falsehood. Why? Because he's blind. Even though the Word of God is right in front of him, he cannot see any of what it says because he is blind. The person who receives light, that's the person who perceives error. He perceives, he has perception and he goes, this is wrong. He perceives While the person in darkness cannot see why something is wrong, why it is an error. <clears throat> you see, it's like this. It's like when you shout at somebody and you're like, you say, watch out, a trap. And the guy goes, what trap? Where? I don't see it. You go, well, that's kind of like an elementary ex ex example. Well, it's like saying, watch out, sin. Watch out, sin. And the blind guy goes, the guy in darkness goes, what's sin? I don't see that as sin. You, you think that's wrong? That's blind. Han, it's a little too cold. Thank you. Watch out, sin! What's sin? That's not sin. You need a savior! The guy in darkness goes, to save me from what? Does it look like I need a savior? I remember that. <clears throat> I don't know. If, has that ever happened to you when you come to somebody and you go like, man, you just really need Jesus to save you. And they go, save me from what? I don't, does it look like I'm lost? <laughs> well, that's blindness. They have no perception. That is the difference between the person with sight versus the person who is blind. The person in darkness. The person... Who receives the light and life knows righteousness from unrighteousness. They know it. It's not like they always get everything perfectly right. But they know when they know this is 
unrighteous and they know that this is righteous. The person in darkness oftentimes thinks he's fighting for what is right, not knowing that he's actually fighting against God because he's blind and he's, he's in darkness. That's why you'll see many people, you know, they'll have picket signs and they'll march and they'll do all these things for a cause that is so absolutely contrary to scriptures. Why? Because they cannot see. They're so darkened. They think they're doing the right thing, the good thing, the moral thing. Yet, in fact, what they are doing is they're fighting God Himself. It's because they're in darkness. Darkness is very evident in our postmodern culture. So in your mind, you can page through all of the different sins that our current culture is attempting to normalize. And that's what they do. They first have to normalize it, right? They have to make it... Well, everybody, everybody does this. This is normal for our culture. This is why one of my goals for this year is to focus on my conscience. Your conscience. Your conscience is, um, is what you have to guard. Guard your heart. Because from it, all of the decisions of your life come. Your conscience drives you. It's the rudder of your life. God gave every one of us a conscience. And the conscience is basically what accuses you or excuses you based on the highest truth you've been exposed to. Your conscience doesn't generate truth. Your conscience only tells you, according to the truth that you read in scriptures, you are now guilty. Or according to the truth that you read in scripture, you are now excused. You are not guilty. You see, your conscience is not a light bulb that, that generates light and throws light. Your conscience is is like a, what do you call that, where the sun comes through in the roof? You have a sun, skylight, thank you. Your conscience is like a skylight. It allows the light to come through. Your conscience, therefore, is this skylight, and whatever truth you are being exposed to at all times will form your conscience, and you cannot get away from your conscience. Your conscience will always accuse or excuse you. So your conscience is from God. That is God's first way of restraining evil in your life. That's why you sometimes, even though you could get away with something, you choose not to do it. Why? Because, ah, oh, my conscience wouldn't let me. Man, I could have made that extra $7.50. I could have walked out of the store with that extra cash. Because they gave me the wrong change. But my conscience goes like, ah, go back. I'm like, all right, why? This is going to cost me financially, but man, am I going to sleep well tonight. <laughs> you can't get away from your conscience. <clears throat> so it is what holds you accountable. And so this is the reason why for 2021, this is my personal statement. And I'll quote it to you. Zero conviction where there is no directive, scriptural directive, and total conviction where there is a scriptural directive. Zero conviction where there is no scriptural directive. But total conviction where there is a scriptural directive. You see, it's almost like some people, they grow up in churches where if they drop the Bible, their heart smites them. Oh, I dropped the Bible. And oh my gosh, what is going to happen for the next seven years? Right? <laughs> I dropped the Bible. So they're so convicted of a drop in the thing, but then they have zero conviction 
over the fact that they've never opened it. I don't feel bad. No, I don't read a Bible. I got one. It's right there on the family family Bible, you see. So, so basically, they have conviction over things that the Bible has no directive for, and they have no conviction over something the Bible absolutely directs them into. And so it's very important for us as individuals and for us as parents to make sure that skylight over there allows the light of God's Word to form and fashion and construct and orchestrate our children's consciences, our own consciences, because that is your guide. And then I said, zero fear where there is no scriptural warning, while total fear for what we are warned against. Uh, people today, they have no fear of God, but they have the highest degrees of fear imaginable for all the things they ought not to live in fear over. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, literally, you've seen in this last year people just absolutely destroyed with fear. But when it comes to the things of God, no fear. Mm -mm. No. The fear of what they shouldn't be fear, fearful over becomes their excuse as to why they don't have to fear what God told them to do. Does it make sense? You understand what I'm saying? But not that this last year was a bad thing. Because this last year is definitely not, did not take God by surprise. <laughs> just so you know. But it does prove something about people. The person in darkness has a, has a defective conscience. Horrified at the things, at, at things the Bible has no concern over. And completely aloof over the things that scripture warns you against. It's called twisted. But that's the person in darkness. Why? Because he doesn't see. He has no perception. Why? He's blinded to those truths. Number two, understanding versus ignorance. Understanding versus ignorance. That is the second, ignorance is the second sign of somebody in darkness. Wow. How am I going to fit this in here? Okay, I'm just going to say ignorance that way, okay? Understanding versus ignorance. So you can sift through these truths and see how you can evaluate yourself or even those around you. I'm not saying to judge people. I'm just saying know the truth about everything and everyone. See, man's understanding <clears throat> can be enlightened or be darkened. His understanding. So first, we were talking about his blindness, we were talking about what he can see or cannot see. But secondly, now we're talking about what he understands and what he does not understand. What he grasps and what he does not grasp. <clears throat> you see, a man's understanding is made up out of his rational thinking, his rational mind, his ability to reason, that faculty of reasoning. But the person who's in darkness is crippled in his rational thought and in his faculty of reason. People can no longer reason today, and they, they've never really been able to reason rationally because they're in darkness. When I used to work at Minars, my, 
my, the one guy I used to work with, he always used to um, ask me about the Bible and about the Lord. And I would always tell him, brother, you've got to start serving the Lord. He goes, no, I'm still young. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that, uh, you know, I said, uh, you putting it off is like you th you're rolling those eternal dice, right? The eternal dice. You're just gambling with, with eternity. And so it became a joke amongst everybody we worked with. And, um, but not that it's a joke. It's a serious thing because people who live in darkness have no understanding. They don't, they're not rationally thinking about it. They don't treat money the way they treat eternity. They are more, they are more careful with their money than what they are with their eternal life. They don't gamble money the way they gamble eternity. And so the person in darkness cannot wrap his mind around God's thoughts. He has no understanding. He cannot wrap his mind around God's ways. He lacks understanding. He's ignorant. He remains ignorant to the truth. You see, God's thoughts, God's ways, God's truth makes no sense to him. Makes no sense to him. That's why when you have large churches, you can't actually really share the truth of God because it makes no sense to most people who are in darkness. That's why, let me just keep going. So, <laughs> you see, the person in darkness is oftentimes offended by the truth of Christ. The truth can't be preached because it's too sharp, it's too harsh, it's too black and white. The lines are drawn too deep. It's, it's, it's not what blesses them. It's the call to glorify God, and that doesn't bless them. They, they want to receive something instead of give something to God. So that person that is in darkness is oftentimes offended by Christ and he finds God's ways to be narrow-minded and he finds God's ways to be foolish. Why? Because he has no understanding. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says just that. It says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I mean, the thing that just humbles you to no end is the very thing that is so foolish to somebody else. The thing you live for is, is, is when somebody else looks and they go like, wow, how stupid. I know of people who, who had to give secretly because <laughs> their parents would be irate over the fact that they would give to the church. You see, what's, what's a blessing for one is foolishness to another. Why? Because they're filled with ignorance. They have no understanding. The fallen man has a veil over his mind. His understanding has been darkened, but Jesus came as the light. The light to open people's minds so that they can understand the very truth of God. Look at this verse. It just really blesses me. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says this. One of those who heard us was Lydia from, from Thyatira. <clears throat> she was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a woman who worshipped God. In other words, she was Jewish. She worshipped God as a Jew. The Bible says... She was a woman who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her mind to pay attention to what Paul was saying. And the Lord did what? 
He opened her understanding. He opened her mind so that she could listen to what Paul was saying, pay attention to it. You see, that means before God opened her mind, her mind was unable to grasp God's truth. Why? Because she was in darkness. Until God flipped that light switch, she was unable to comprehend. In the NASB, it says this way. It says it this way. A woman named Lydia was listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira and worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond. The Lord opened her heart to respond. You see, you always reject the thing you don't understand. People fear the things they don't get and they, don't, they cannot grasp. They're basically repelled by it and they think it's foolishness until they understand it. But this is what happened to her. She was sitting there. She couldn't grasp it. She couldn't understand it. The Lord miraculously opened her understanding and not only could she pay attention, according to the Good News Translation, but according to the NASB, it says not only did she pay attention, but her heart was able to respond. Again, folks, until God touches a person's heart, there's an inability, there's an inability, there's an inability to respond to Him. Look at this verse. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things Paul was teaching. Without God opening in her heart, she wouldn't respond. So to perceive is to see something. That was the first point. To perceive is to see something, to identify something. A blind man cannot do. But to understand, to understand is to know the meaning of something. Suddenly, Lydia understood what she was listening to. But it was by a miracle of God. Removing the darkness so she could see. Removing the darkness so she could understand. A person in darkness would sit in the service and they were like, Oh my gosh, what are we even talking about? That's the person in darkness. The person in light goes, that, 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 that's, what, that's what happened to me actually. This is actually what, I remember the day. I remember when I opened up and I was, oh, I was in that service and, the man, I was like, suddenly, wow, yeah, I'm like, why do I now say, amen, it's true, I agree, when in fact before, I couldn't. From darkness into light. Finally, number three. Moral clarity to moral deception versus moral deception. I'm going to write it a little smaller. Moral clarity... Versus moral deception. Moral deception. Moral clarity versus moral deception. I wanted to change that point and I forgot to do it on the notes. You see, moral light or moral clarity refers to purity, holiness, and right living before God. That skylight is, is, is huge. That skylight has been windexed. <laughs> it is clean. That skylight, there's no trees. That skylight is receiving rays from the sun straight from the Word of God. And it's forming this conscience. And this person is now living before God being, you know, excused or 
accused by the very word of God, feeling guilty for what is wrong and feeling completely affirmed for what is not. They walk stable before the Lord, standing on a secure, on a secure um, truth of the word of God. The person who is in darkness has, is morally deceived. The person who is in light has moral clarity. I'm not saying they're perfect. What I am saying is that they are very clear over the fact that they are not perfect. They have complete clarity of it. To the point where it's like, I have no other option. I'm running to Jesus. I am so clear-minded and clear-eyed about this guy and how he falls so far short of the glory of God, I have one option. It is the mercy of God. The guy with clarity of, of moral clarity is that, is that tax collector beating his chest saying, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. He was in the light as a sinner. But the Pharisee, who was doing all these great things that started pointing to other people and saying, thank God I'm not like him and you know, God, I do all these things. He was completely morally deceived. You see, the moral, the person in darkness is under moral deception. So moral light, clarity refers to knowing purity, identifying purity, chasing after purity, holiness, and righteous living. Moral deception refers to those who live unrighteous lives while seeing themselves as basically good, basically good, that's a morally deceived individual, always. I'll, I'll show it to you, and we're going to come in for a close here soon. Oh. Moral deception. <laughs> a couple more pages back there. Moral deception in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, verse 23. I want you to listen to this as we read through it. And I want you to identify this thing about the people <laughs> Jesus is referring to. They were shocked. They were shocked at the outcome of their eternity. They were completely under the impression their eternity was going to look 100% different. All right? They were shocked at finding out what was really true about them. It says, so then you will know them by their fruits. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons. We did all this good stuff. And in your name performed many mighty miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me. I never knew you. Leave me. They were just explaining as to why they believed they were right with God. Jesus said, leave me. Who? You who practiced what? Lawlessness, right? They were completely deceived thinking that they were doing the right thing. They, were, they had moral deception that ruled them. Darkness ruled them. Here Jesus explains how shocked the morally deceived will be on that day. Because they were here on earth convincing themselves that they are saved. They were convincing themselves, I'm saved. Why? Because, you know, many reasons. I saw two pennies on the ground. You know, I'm saved. Why? Because, um, you know, I was, sitting on a, I was sitting on a bench and then I got up. And as I got up, there was a big tree trunk that fell on the bench, you know. Or, 
you know, I know, I know God's, God's on my side. Why? Because as I stepped out of the street, the car rammed right into the spot where I was standing. Or I know that I'm saved. Why? Because, you know, everybody affirms my salvation. And, I, and these people who are morally deceived will have a great surprise one day. Then John says, let me just say this. The reason Jesus said away from me was not because of anything other than they were practicing lawlessness. Practicing lawlessness. It doesn't mean that they sinned. It meant that they chose to live in the sin that they have. They didn't hate the sin that they were in. You see, you cannot love while at the same time not hate. The level of your love equal, equates the level of your hate. In order to love, you have to hate. Because I love children, I have to hate child abuse. I cannot say, I love children. And when it comes to child abuse, I'm like, well, you know, that's kind of something that happens to these people I say I love. Well, that, that, it's not natural. If I love, I hate that which attempts to destroy the very thing I love. If I say, I love God, but I wink at sin, then what I'm saying is, I love God and I don't care that sin violates Him. The very one I say I love. In other words, what I am saying is, to say that I love God is to say that I hate the sin that comes against His character. This is why, if, if you look at the church worldwide, at least here in the West, you know, there's no hatred for sin within the body of Christ. And this is a problem. Why? Because it actually is a sign as to the level of love that they have for God. They don't love God if they do not hate sin. They love self. Therefore, they don't care to wink at the sin that violates the God they claim to love. You got me. They're in darkness. Why? Because they are morally deceived. They think they can practice a sin and be right with God. And Jesus said, away from me. I did not know you. Then John says, <clears throat> and the darkness did not grasp it. The darkness did not grasp it. You see, other translations use the word overcome instead of grasp. Light is not overcome by darkness, but darkness is always expelled by light. Here in 1 John 3 verse 9, it says, and just to clarify this point that we were talking about, loving God, therefore hating sin. I cannot say that I, that I love righteousness while participating comfortably in unrighteousness. Because 1 John 3 verse 9 says, no one, not one, no one, not one, who has been born of God practices sin. It doesn't say no one born of God never sins. It says there isn't one who is born of God who practices sin. Why? Because God has given them the gift of repentance. They now have the ability to repent for sin. They can turn their back on the very thing that violates God in their life. No one, not one, has been born of God who has been born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed remains in him. Because God's seed is in this person. Therefore, they cannot keep producing harvests or fruits of unrighteousness, of sin. Because God's seed is in them. And he cannot sin continually. In other words, he cannot practice it. He cannot live in it. Why? Because 
He has been born of God. Paul Washer says this, quote, To put it simply, the Christian now loves the God he once hated and hates the self he once loved. He now desires the righteousness he once spurned and despises the unrighteousness of which he once boasted. See, when you see that become a truth for somebody, you see the blind person suddenly sees his need for salvation. He sees that he's fallen. He sees that he's depraved. He sees that he cannot help himself. He sees that Christ offers and brings him light. That person doesn't remain ignorant, but he now has understanding of his state and how God planned to to save him from his personal state of lostness. That same person is no longer morally deceived. He knows he's guilty. He's like, oh God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. Oh God, have mercy upon me. I, I hate my sin. I hate the sin that I used to boast over. You see, the morally deceived, they boast over stuff. They become proud over a lot of things they shouldn't be proud over. They even march because they are proud, right? It's the morally deceived. But that person there, when he's in the light, he goes, I got moral clarity. This is not God. I hate the very things that, that God hates. And I love the very things now that God loves. If you see that in a person, you know, they have exited the darkness and they have come into the light. They were blind, now they see. They were ignorant, but now they understand. Like Lydia, their hearts were opened. I want to finish with this question. You might say, well, Jacques, I know I need less darkness in my life. <laughs> I need less darkness in my life. Uh, I ask this question the perfect way, but you understand my heart. How does light of God enter my darkened life? How does the light of God enter my darkened life? What I am saying is, you know, no person really stands when it comes to salvation in a dim room. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness, one of the two, right? But if you're saying today, you know, I feel like my life is dark. I have darkness in my life. I need the light that God brings. You see, there are two answers to this question. And the first is, if you are not in Christ, you are in darkness. He is the life and the light. And if you are not in Christ, you, you are in death and darkness and if you are not in Christ then your only option and you can't have anything else other than first starting here you can't start anywhere else but here is repentance before God and faith in Jesus Christ repentance before God and faith in Jesus Christ is turning your back on self and sin and turn to God and then put your faith in Jesus but the second answer to this question, for those of you who are believers and saying, I need God's light in my life. I realize that this is all true for me, but I still feel like my life needs more light. If that's you, I have two verses for you. Psalm 119 verse 105. Psalm 119 verse 105 says this, Your word is a lamp to my feet, and your word is a light to my path. The word of God is your light. The Word of God is your light. You go like, yeah, that's why 
And I just love John 3.16, the only verse I know. For God so loved me that it doesn't matter whatever happens, I'm always okay with Him. You know, like that's how people interpret that verse. But let me just say that the Word is a lamp. What about the Word is a lamp? Your understanding of the Word is a lamp. We call it doctrine. Your right understanding of the Word is a lamp. Your right understanding, your, your biblically accurate understanding, your exege exegetical understanding of scriptures is the light to your path. It is the voice of God to you. Your understanding of God's truth is God's voice in your life. What's God's truth? Biblical doctrine. Verse Psalm 119 verse 130 says this, the entrance of your word gives light. The entrance of accurate, pure, biblical, scriptural doctrine gives light. It gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. It gives understanding to the simple. So again, how do you hear God? By having the right doctrine. <laughs> That's how you hear God. How do you deceive? By having bad theology. You see, Satan doesn't destroy a church by attacking it. He destroys a church by doing what? Joining it, right? He doesn't destroy your life by attacking you. He destroys your life by influencing you. He helps you view theology in the wrong light. <laughs> he helps you misinterpret God's truth. And now you're hearing a voice that looks like God, but is not Him. It's an angel of light. And that's how Satan comes. So the entrance of your word gives light. The entrance of solid Bible doctrine, scriptural theology that's exegetical and accurate, harmonizes with all other scriptures. That is what gives you light and it gives you understanding and stops you from being ignorant. You can have light which expels the darkness, but you don't expel darkness without light. Let's pray. Father God, thank you.